So let me ask you this. How many of you are get-to-the-point kind of people? If you're in a marriage relationship, you're probably looking at your spouse being like, you're the opposite of them, right? Uh, you, you don't, you, maybe you're the kind of person, you don't need paragraphs of explanation. You just want the conclusion. Just tell me where you landed, please. I beg you. You don't need to know how anyone feels about it. You are interested in the fact of the matter. Some of you just have a deep amen happening in your spirit. And some of you are like, but there's so much to know, right? Everyone's different. Uh, I worked with someone once um, who was very much like this. And when he would come into the room, you'd say, hi. And he would say, fine, thanks, how are you? And, and it was very off-putting. It was very off-putting. And when you asked him, <laughs> am I wrong? Am I wrong, Rob? No. And you asked him why, why it wasn't Rob, uh, why he did it, although Rob has done it before. I've heard him say it. Uh, you asked him why he would say, because you're going to say hi, then I'm going to say hi, then you're going to say, how are you? And I'm going to say, fine, thanks, how are you? And so let's just skip the middle. <laughs> it's very off-putting. That same person actually... Uh, also did something for me, maybe you're thankful for, it was a very difficult lesson to learn when I was 22 or 23 or whatever it was, but he would come out of his office and I would go, oh, um, um, and he would say, every single thing you're about to say after the word um has just lost 50% of its value. Take the um out of your speech. And while you're at it, take the like out of your speech. Like, so like, so then, so then like, I won't want to hear any of it. And it was like, oh, it was a harsh, I'm not going to lie to you, it was harsh. There was nicer ways to say it, but I'm cautious now. I've been cautious for the last 20 years or so because we just want to get to the point. So hopefully, you know, hopefully you're not as quite as extreme as that. But no matter how matter of fact you are, just as a person naturally in your personality, I think all of us appreciate it when someone just sometimes just gets to the point, Right? I, when I want a recipe from Pinterest, you already know what I'm going to say. You already know. Thank, thank, the, thank the people who invented the jump to recipe button. Do you know what I'm saying? Thank you. I don't need to know 14 paragraphs about how you were feeling and what was going on in your life while you were last making this recipe. I don't care. I only love you. I'm sure you're a great person. I just want to know how to make the thing, right? I just need to know how to make the thing and how much of the ingredients I need. Sometimes, though, of course, the story, the emotion, all the extras are valuable. Sometimes you need to know those things. And if we skip them, it's to our detriment. I, I totally admit that is true. But there is so often something refreshing about this and then that. This happened and then that happened. The end. And that is kind of how people describe the Gospel of Mark, which is where we're going to be for the next few weeks. We have four Gospels. If you're new to the Bible, let me just tell you, there are four Gospels. Um, all of them are the, a, a description and narrative about the life and ministry of Jesus. The first three are very similar, and they're called the Synoptic Gospels. John's Gospel, the fourth one, is very different. We're actually going to focus in a little bit more on that, uh, starting on Pentecost Sunday in the month of May. But uh, Matthew is the first one, and Matthew's gospel is probably written for the Jewish people. It really does a, a lot of work to prove how Jesus um, is the Messiah. His life and ministry prove that out. 
Luke's gospel is for likely his in his mind were the Gentile people. It was a, it's a carefully researched account of Jesus' life and ministry. He didn't know him personally. He was saved through the uh, the ministry of Paul, and so he went back and did all of this research to uh, really carefully give an account of Jesus' life. But Mark likely had a no-nonsense Roman reader in mind when he recorded the events of Jesus' life. And his gospel really stresses action. It's like the action Bible. It gives a straightforward, detailed account of Jesus' ministry. The introduction to it in the NIV says that this gospel is perhaps the most exciting collection of stories about Jesus, focusing especially on the miracles he performed. So for example, in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark, feel free to open to it there if you want to. And if you're new with us, you don't know this, you also, the scriptures I'm going to be reading today are in the YouVersion app, Bible app, and then you can go to more and then events, and they're already loaded there for you, but there's also Bibles in front of you. And so if you want to open up your uh, Bible app or you want to grab a Bible, you can just take a look at the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. It is 45 verses long, and here's what happens in 45 verses. John the Baptist prepares the way. The baptism and the testing of Jesus in the wilderness happens in four verses combined. Jesus announces the good news. Jesus first calls his disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Jesus drives out an impure spirit. Jesus heals many. Jesus prays in a solitary place. Jesus heals a man with leprosy, chapter one, done. Like, it's a lot. It's a lot. He gets directly to the point. And you'll see that, all of those kind of headings as, that I just read out for you. If you look at the first chapter of Mark. And so this is why we're going to use the Gospel of Mark to propel us towards Easter for the next five Sundays. Because his account is the easiest way to tell a particular story about Jesus that we haven't focused on in a little while here. I, th I think we rightly talk about trusting God as we suffer in a broken world. We, we do that a lot because that is our lived experience so much of the time. But we don't as often perhaps feed our faith with a reminder of just how powerful Jesus is. The chain-breaking, miracle-making, powerful Jesus. So uh, we'll end, of course, at this end of this series, the end of the month. We're going to end with the ultimate miracle, the resurrection of Jesus, and how he has called us into that same resurrection power. So I'm already looking forward to that, of course. But over the next few weeks, we're going um, to work to build our faith a little bit with the miracles of Jesus in the book of Mark. And, and we're going to see how people became free and clean and forgiven and alive and fed and called. And can you think of what we might be talking about this morning? Anyone know where we're going to start this morning? You see it? Please tell me you see it. Can you see it from there? We're going to start with how Jesus makes people free. So let's jump in where Mark jumps in. Mark chapter 1. There is so much of the Gospel of Mark that we are not going to get to, obviously, in just a couple of weeks. And so uh, we're just skipping. We're going to find some miracles and whatever. But man, would I ever, ever encourage you, if you haven't already, or if you haven't for a while, to read through the book of Mark in its entirety. But let's uh, read Mark chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 21. It says this. They, and so this is Jesus and the, the, the four disciples that he's already called, went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, 
What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Right to the point, tells the story in eight verses. This is, by the way, in no way the only instance in the Gospels of Jesus freeing people from demonic influence. Some of the stories, um, of these stories I'm going to show you are parallels to one another, because in the Synoptic Gospels, we have a lot of overlap between what's being told about the life and ministry of Jesus. But this, uh, we get stories like this, we can read about this kind of miracle in these places. Matthew 4, 8, 9, 12, 15, and 17. Mark 3, 5, 6, 7, and 16 in addition to 1. Luke 4, 8, 9, and 11. It's all over the Gospels this particular kind of miracle. And this is the first miracle that Mark records in his gospel account. John, being special, the special gospel, as we like to think of it, John's gospel starts with Jesus turning water into wine, which is the first of the seven miracles, the, the seven signs that he records in his gospel account. So he's a little bit different. But um, Matthew's account, the other, the other two synoptic gospels are the same. Jesus, uh, in, in his account, Jesus heals the sick, including the demon-possessed. And in the gospel of Luke, um, this, his, his gospel starts, the first miracle we see there is a parallel account to the one we just read in Mark. So why is Jesus' ability to deal with demons or impure spirits at the top of the order for these gospel writers? What these eight verses that we just read reveal are actually very remarkable. So let's walk through them together. Of course, verse 21 said, They went to Capernaum when the Sabbath came, and Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And it makes sense for Jesus that he starts out his ministry in the synagogue because it was the most influential place in the culture. It was a teaching institution. And there was a synagogue in every community. And I think it was that I read somewhere that um, if there was the kind of the law for the Jews was that if there was 10 families in a particular location, as soon as you reach that critical mass, you needed to set up a synagogue so there would be a center of learning and teaching about the, about the law and the prophets. And so each one, because there were so many, each one didn't have a permanent teacher or preacher. So they were always open to people coming in and teaching, those who, who seemed to have some learning, those who had something to share. And so it wasn't unusual at all that they would invite Jesus to come and share that particular day on the Sabbath. And he did this a lot in his ministry, actually. You'll see this pattern, and he goes to a place, and he goes to the synagogue, and begins to teach, and he does this a lot, uh, and it becomes less and less as hostility towards him grows, of course, throughout his ministry because of what he was teaching and how he was teaching. And then verse 22 says that the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. They immediately notice that they that Jesus wasn't like anyone they had heard come into the synagogue and teach before. He didn't teach like the teachers of the law. And the other uh, word that you read about like this is, is the scribes. So we'll use those kind of interchangeably, the, the teachers of the law or the scribes. He didn't teach like them. The scribes, when they taught, they actually never gave a decision on their own. They would always begin what they were going to say about the scriptures 
with, um, there is a teaching that, and then they would quote someone who had, who was seen to be in authority over them or was much older or was like, a, you know, kind of had long passed and, and they were still using their words of wisdom and would always quote somebody else. And so, uh, so they would say something like, Rabbi so-and-so says such and such, was always how they taught about scriptures. And if a scribe ever made a statement about what was being read in the scriptures, he, he would support it with a quote from a great legal master of the past. That was the pattern. He would never give an independent judgment or a thought about what he had seen. You were always pulling from what somebody else had said some other place at some other time. And Jesus was obviously so different immediately. That's why they recognized it so immediately that something else was going on here. Th these folks at Capernaum were just like, something is very, very different with this Jesus. And he spoke. He spoke independently. He didn't cite other authorities or experts. He spoke with the finality of the voice of God. Very different. So you can imagine if, if you could compare what had been your pattern in your synagogue all of this time and then Jesus comes in and starts to speak um, on his own authority how that would have really shaken the place up and then verse 23 just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out what do you want to do with what do you want with us Jesus of Nazareth have you come to destroy us I know who you are the holy one of God I think one of the commentaries I read uh really nailed it on the head when they said, it is a strange commentary on the spiritual situation in Capernaum that a demonic, demoniac, by the way, demoniac might be a new word for you today. It just means that you are a demon-possessed person. It's a strange commentary on the spiritual situation in Capernaum that a demoniac could worship in the synagogue with no sense of incongruity until confronted by Jesus. Isn't that true when you have that pointed out to you no one seems to have noticed or was bothered by the presence of the demon who was clearly already there until jesus came on the scene and we have to assume that it was because um it, w it, it wasn't obvious until jesus presence among them meant that the demon could no longer hide however that looked and the question comes have you come to destroy us by the way, in, in the original language, this could just as easily have not been a question but a statement because the punctuation marks are added later for our English benefit um, and in some transcripts, but it could just easily read, you have come to destroy us. The demons recognize, unfortunately, far more clearly than the synagogue congregants, the role of judgment in the ministry of Jesus, that he wasn't going to let this stand. And when the demon says us, can destroy us, it could mean perhaps that that man was possessed by um, many demons or that this demon was speaking on behalf of a group of them. Um, but I'll tell you, they were well aware of what uh, John writes in his letters, actually, in 1 John 3, 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And the demonic forces knew that immediately. And knew that there was now something different about to happen. In the time of Jesus, there were exorcists. There were people who would go around and uh, their job was to try and cast demons out of people. 
But it's clear, uh, as, as another commentator said, that Jesus was no ordinary exorcist who had mastered the techniques of manipulating spirits. Rather, his, ar- his arrival signifies the presence of God's powerfully effective reign, which leaves no room for opposition to God by Satan and his demons. The day has come, according to the prophecy of Zechariah 13.2, that the Lord of hosts will come and remove unclean spirits. So when the, and also, the demon calls Jesus the Holy One of God, which wasn't to say that uh, there was a recognition of who Jesus was, but it was actually more of, uh, almost every commentator I, I read about this said that there was something in the culture that believed that if you said someone's name like that, that you could try to have, you could have authority or power over them. So probably he, he says this to try to create some kind of a, a just shift the power uh, balance to, back towards him. And obviously it's completely useless in the presence of Jesus. Had no effect. Verse 25 says, be quiet, said Jesus sternly, come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Jesus, with one word of clear, simple, brief authority, exercised the demon. No one had ever seen anything like this before. This was not power from a spell or a formula or an incantation or some elaborate rite. It was just the simple power of Jesus. And the people were rightly astonished. Can you imagine verse 27 the people were all so amazed that they asked each other what is this a new teaching and with authority he gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him so news about him spread quickly over the whole region of galilee well i guess it would wouldn't it jesus miracles weren't only about healing the sick they they represent a war against the demonic forces Jesus disarms Satan's power that has been pirating human souls and sets the victims free one by one. And the ousting of this unclean spirit tells us that we are not battling evil alone. We are not helpless victims in the war that is going on in the spiritual realm. And Mark's matter-of-fact account of this miracle points out that something extraordinary is happening, that Satan is being restrained until his final defeat in a way that has never been seen before. The kingdom of God has come to earth, and it's the beginning of the end for the captivity that Satan has us in with his lies. And God is acting on our behalf, and there is nothing more to fear. Other literature that's written around the same time as Mark's gospel was written and all the Gospels, actually, demonic activity was talked about, actually. It wasn't like it was uh, something that people didn't know about. But it was always talked about with terror. And the writing of the New Testament is so different than the writing of the day when it came to the spiritual realm. It's clear that the writers of the New Testament understood that God had won a decisive victory over Satan in the cross. And now Jesus, more powerful than Satan, always has been, always will be, baptizes his followers in the Holy Spirit and protects them. He now is is in each person through the indwelling of the Spirit as we put our faith in Jesus. And there's just nothing to fear. 
In Mark, Jesus casting out of demons is an undeniable sign that the kingdom of God has come and that Satan's realm is being overwhelmed. This is going to, if you know the rest of the story, you already know this, but in case you don't, this is going to come with some trouble for Jesus. He is dismantling the tyranny of Satan And he's also presenting the Jews with a new covenant in his teaching, which is the new covenant we're going to celebrate in just a minute with our communion. So both demons and the religious authorities are going to be threatened by him, and they will work together to get rid of him. And they think they do for about three days. But then three days later, Easter is coming. It's the greatest miracle of all time. But of course, more on on that later. More on that later. So many good songs. I picked all the songs for Easter last week. So much to say about Easter. So this is the story. uh, This is the story of freedom from Mark chapter 1. And now listen. I shared this miracle in much the same way as Mark did. Okay, in fairness, I used a lot more words than Mark did. (laughs) A lot more words. I totally appreciate that. Um, But... I shared it in much the same way he did, and I did it on purpose. In my sharing of it with you, I have accepted the fact that demons are real and they can possess people. I didn't qualify it. I didn't explain it away. Because the truth of the matter is, we do know and we have seen that this is true. The spiritual realm is real. And people need healing. And they need to be set free by Jesus. And so we need to understand that the spiritual realm is is a reality. And the Bible never shies away from it, so neither can we. The thing is, people need healing, and Jesus is more than able to set people free. Mark wasn't afraid to just go right to the point and say exactly what we needed to understand about the power and authority of Jesus, who now lives in us. And I I get it. I get that the statement that I just made about the spiritual realm, about demons, is not fully understood or even believed in 2024 by so many. And even if it is, even if you say, I can accept that that's what happened in the first century. But how do we apply this to our lives when manifestations of demons seem to be so much less common now than all of these stories we have in the Gospels when Jesus was walking on the earth? Where did the demons go if they're real, Tracy? Huh? I know you would never speak like that because that would be rude. But like you might just in your spirit have a little pushback about that. That's okay. I want to tell you this about the spiritual realm, about the power of, of the enemy and how real that is in this is still today. It's, that, it's this. We live in an interesting time since Jesus died, rose again, and ascended to heaven. Because when Jesus came, he said it himself, he brought the kingdom of heaven near and here. He crushed the head of the serpent. You remember that from a couple weeks ago? Last last weeks ago. (laughs) Last week. It was just last week. I'm sure it's still burning in your hearts from last week. He crushed the head of the serpent by conquering death. He became the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And in his perfection, his righteousness is something he now offers to us. When we trust him with our lives. That's what we call being born again. Or getting saved. Is seeing what Jesus did for us. Accepting his forgiveness. Accepting his grace. And giving our lives to him in return. 
And that's how we get into right standing with God. That's how we receive this same Holy Spirit that Jesus had. By being forgiven of the sin that separates us from him. Okay. So that's true. All of that happened when Jesus came. But the final battle has not been fought, even though it is already won. So we live in the in-between. We live in all that Jesus has already done. And we live in the not yet of what is still to come. And namely, what is still to come is the final battle with Satan and the, the recreation of heaven and earth. Back to how it was intended by our creator. And that we get to live with him in his presence like that forever when we trust in Jesus. But in the meantime, in this kind of middle, while we wait for those things to happen, we know we have these promises that God is going to do that. That Jesus is going to fight and win this final battle that it is actually, in fact, already won. Because if you read in Revelation, there's a big, a, a great battle that is set up. And many forces come against Jesus, and, and Jesus arrives on the scene. And do you remember what happens if you read Revelation? There's actually no battle to be had. It's just over before it begins. That's who we are talking about, this Jesus. See, Satan is restrained now by the work of the Holy Spirit who lives in each believer. But he's still at work in the world. He's still free to steal and kill and destroy. When our lives are not hidden in Christ and his authority over the enemy. Scripture says clearly that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And also tells us very clearly that when he ascended to heaven after his resurrection, he sent that same Holy Spirit to empower us to do what he did. That means that we have the same ability to walk into each day with the knowledge that we can recognize and dismantle the work of the enemy in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our places of work, in our schools. That's the kind of authority and power we live with because Jesus is in us through his Holy Spirit. The miracle of Jesus in this story is freedom. Freedom from sin and shame and fear and oppression and guilt and condemnation and addiction and anxiety and insecurity and all of their stupid friends. Am I allowed to say that? Are there any kids in the room? Sometimes in some people's houses, that's a swear word. I'm sorry. That's how I feel, though. So that is what it's going to be, okay? That is the miracle that Jesus sets us free from. All of that work of the enemy in our lives. But in Christ, hidden in Christ, we have the authority to call these things into account. And stand in forgiveness and esteem and courage and blessing and joy and conviction and sobriety and peace and security. So we do not need to be afraid to face each attack of the enemy with the same confidence that Jesus faced the impure spirit in Mark chapter 1. It's the miracle working power of Jesus who is in you and greater than the enemy who is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's what 1 John 4, 4 tells us. So there is nothing to fear. And yeah, the spiritual forces are very real. And there is an enemy who hates you. 
and he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. But as a child of God, as one who is hidden in Christ, as one who has received his righteousness and is in right standing with God because of all Jesus did and how all you had to do was accept it through faith, you stand in that same authority. You have the ability to recognize when things are a lie in your life. And so we are going to, uh, now, we are going to turn our attention to communion. Because the, the issue here, friends, is not getting ourselves all riled up about the, about the uh, forces of darkness. But to fix our attention on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who made it so that we can walk in peace. And we can walk without fear. And we walk without condemnation. And we walk without anxiety. Come, Rob, I actually need you for something anyway. I know. Want to hang out again? This is my husband, Rob. If you're new, you're like, why is she talking so strangely to this man who led worship this morning? Are you by yourself? You can have everybody come if you want. Okay. I'm thinking about it just, be just before. Hi, honey. Just be, I didn't tell him about this. He loves surprises, so. <laughs> this is also like your tattoo. Yeah. So um, I was thinking about it like this. This is a, a small illustration considering how big Jesus is. We, we know illustrations aren't, aren't the same as the real thing. But if you want to understand what it's like to have your life in Christ, the kind of, that, that you don't have to fear what the enemy is doing, and you don't have to be a, a worried or afraid of any of those kinds of things. And in fact, when you, when you hear or feel or feel attacked by the enemy who does want to steal, kill, and destroy and pull you away from the Lord, that you have the authority to say, mm, no. But it's not because you are so strong. It is because greater is, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And it reminded me about like um, my, 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 it would be like this. If you tried to attack me right now, which I hope you don't, if somebody came after me right now and, and Rob was here, what is the first thing I would do? <laughs> I would like to see you try to get to me. Would they get to me? No. <laughs> It is like saying, like, the, like, you cannot get to me, and I will tell you, yeah, <laughs> and I will be back here. Do you understand? Do you understand? Even if you, even if you were, if I wasn't in the room and you said something, like you were accusing me of something to him, do you know what he would do? I don't even actually want, let's not talk about that. But, like, <laughs> he would put you in your place. And say, mm, you don't get to talk about my wife like that. Um, because, the, because, he, because he would stand in the gap for me. And while he is a very good man, I know he's not Jesus. So how much more? <laughs> right. You, you're allowed to take your, your guitar now. Rob Wilson. <laughs> Rob, we have a rule in our house that if I use one of my kids in an illustration, I, get, I owe them ice cream. Rob just wanted to know if he gets ice cream now. <laughs> okay. I'll get you a peanut buster parfait this afternoon. How's that? Okay. Now I have to, now I have to do it. <laughs> okay. I will, I will. 
This is, this is the kind of authority we are talking about. This is what's on display in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus walks in and immediately this, the forces of the enemy say, what, what are you going to do with us? Already seeing the authority that was in Jesus and that he was already saying, a new day has come. A new day has come. You don't get to steal, kill, and destroy anymore. We are going to have a new covenant. They recognize it immediately, and Jesus now stands in front of us, his Holy Spirit giving us that same protection and authority, allowing us to recognize, discern, and say no to the attacks of the enemy in our life. Some of you have been saying yes to what the enemy has said to you for a really long time. Some of you have received fear. You believe all kinds of lies about you. You listen to that voice all the time. And I am here to tell you this morning that you are free in Christ. Oh, he will correct you and discipline you. We're gonna, we're gonna read that scripture in just a moment. But that condemnation and that anxiety, that addiction that you can't let go of, there is healing and freedom in Jesus' name. It's all through the scriptures. We barely scratch the surface with one little story. There is an enemy and he is real. His forces, his, the, the demons, like the spiritual realm and the battle that goes on there, that is all real can't see it. I, I can't describe it to you in detail. We don't have that much information in scripture. We just know that it's real. But I want to remind you this morning who you are in Christ because when Jesus came, he won a decisive victory for us that we can walk in each and every day. So if you are feeling this morning like any of those things on that list that I just put up on the screen there, if you feel like you are tormented and tortured, if you feel like you are being attacked by the enemy, I want to be the one to say to you today, that battle has been won. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You are a child of God. And he stands as your shield and your fortress. And you don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid to talk about demons. They don't have authority over us in Christ. We're going to take some time after we receive these emblems and invite you for prayer. If there's anything in your life you want to pray about, maybe there is something in your life where you're saying, I, 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 there's just this lie I can't break. There's something in my life that I just, I, I feel over and over again. And I need the chain breaking, miracle making, powerful name of Jesus to come and provide that miracle and set me free. I mean, you can come and pray about anything else or our prayer team would love to pray with you, and, and, but I just want to let you know that that opportunity is going to be available for you. And even for you, might be in this room and you're new here and you're just like, oh, this is the kind of church that talks about demons all the time. That's cool. You know, maybe we do. I don't know. We talk about whatever the scriptures say and we just unpack it. But I want to tell you that that if you are like, I don't know Jesus like that, I don't have a relationship with him, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'll tell you, I need the kind of miracle in my life that you're talking about, I want to invite you to meet him today. I want to invite you to give your life to him today. Maybe for the first time, maybe it's been years and years since you've been to church, you're coming back and you're like, I actually 
need to make a change and I need that kind of freedom you're talking about and I, I need to receive Jesus and all that he's done for me. We're gonna give you that opportunity.